Welcome to Wisdom Trek with Grams. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, and we are on day 2,127 of our trek. The purpose of Wisdom Trek is to create a legacy of wisdom, to seek out discernment and insights, and to boldly grow where few have chosen to grow before. Today we are continuing with our ongoing series of messages that I delivered at Putnam Congregational Church over the past couple of years. This message is week 9 of a 14-week series from the book of James titled, Wisdom is Faith in Action. I pray that it will be a conduit of learning and encouragement for you. Well, Janice was up checking over my props for today, making sure that they were acceptable. As I helped me to learn, just like Susan's object lesson today, helps me to picture what we need to be taught from the scriptures. And we're continuing our series today from Proverbs of the New Testament, which we refer to as the letter of James. And two weeks ago, we looked at the persons who are wise, unwise, and otherwise. But one sign of wisdom is understanding what causes fights and quarrels in our lives and how to stop those fights. So if you'll join me on page 1884 in the Pew Bible, we're going to be reading James chapter 4, verses 1 through 10 today. 1884 in the Pew Bible. So follow along with me and keep the passage open during the message so you can follow along as we go through these verses. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire to have, you desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet and you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask of God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives, that you might spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That the, that's why the scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourself to God then. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Now, as most of you know, I grew up in a family with 10 kids on an apple orchard. And we'd often get into squabbles and fights. Most of the time, they probably weren't very important. But to gain attention, I'm sure that was part of it. Because to get attention from your parents with 10 siblings, sometimes you had to make a show. Growing up on an apple orchard, we had the perfect weapons. We'd be out in the orchard picking apples or in the cooler stacking or sorting apples. And at times, we'd get into squabbles. And we'd use the apples for our weapons. We'd toss them at each other, hoping to hit the others. And especially the good ones were the rotten ones. They didn't cause much damage, but they were sure nasty when they hit. And I remember in the cooler, we'd have insulation on the cooler walls in the, the apple cooler. And you could see splats where rotten apples had been thrown and splatted against the wall. I think fighting is inherent within us, just as our basic nature 
And unfortunately, as adults, too many times, we seem to work arguments and fights into our lives, as if that's something that we should treasure. Fighting comes naturally to most people, especially, I think, with men. We love to tussle around and box and fight and wrestle. But why do we do this? I think it's partly because of our scrappy nature. We prefer to go to the juggler vein of someone else instead of giving in and not having what we desire. And it all started with the fall in Genesis chapter 3. The first fight between Cain and Abel ended up in murder in Genesis chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. And since then, we can chart history easily by the conflicts that occurred. We think of the Persian media wars. We think of World War I and II and Vietnam. And we sort of set the whole timeline based on these wars, these conflicts. But it isn't surprising then that James addresses the cycle of conflicts among the churches and among the Christians that he was writing to. Worshiping, fighting, and then praying. Worshiping, fighting, and then praying. It was the same 2,000 years ago as it is today. And that's the problem that James addresses in these first 10 verses of chapter 4. And unfortunately, there's a chapter break between chapter 3 and 4. Now, James didn't insert those breaks or the verses. Those were added centuries later. But he's continuing his theme from chapter 3 and the initial comments of regarding the destructive nature of our tongue, which he talked about in chapter 3, verses 6 through 10, builds into a climax beginning here in chapter 4. And he deals with the open conflicts with Christians. And you might think, well, this was an early church. Why would they have conflicts? But obviously, James had to address these in a letter to them, a personal letter to the church or the Christians that were scattered abroad, these Jewish believers that believed that Christ was the Messiah. James provides us with a solution, as he always does to these conflicts, that have taken tolls on the ranks of the church throughout the ages. His diagnosis includes prescriptions for handling all kinds of conflicts. And we should expect conflict and fighting among the world because they don't have God in his word and the spirit that dwells within them. But why is it characteristic among the Christians also? We know that people fight in businesses, and politics, and religion, and education, in marriage, and sports. But it's sad to say, throughout the 2,000 plus years of the Christian church, and even in the past in the nation of Israel, there was much conflict and fighting. And James has this in mind when he writes the first verse of chapter 4, what is causing the quarrels and fights among you? And throughout his letter, he's addressing these Jewish Christian believers about their conflicts, their problems, their quarrels, and their fights. And the Greek word for quarrels is polemos. And it's the general word about fights and warfare in which we get our word polemics or arguments from. And the word for fighting here is the Greek word mache. And it's more than a narrow term for skirmishes or personal attacks. And I think it's also where we drive our word macho. You know, you want to be a macho man or a macho person. It's because you want to prove to yourself that you're worth something. 
And these Christians were in a constant state of quarreling, and they often exploded into open conflicts. Where do these quarrels and fights come from? And we're tempted to say, well, the devil made me do it. Or from false Christians that act like Christians but really aren't. Or from some heretics that crept into the church secretly. But James answers, nope, that's not it. James answers, don't they come from our, the evil desires that war within you? James is somewhat good at rubbing our noses into the depravity that we have, that we dwell on these things that causes conflicts. And it might seem harsh what James is saying here, but at times we need reminded about it. We don't need to dwell on it constantly, but we need to remind it about it every once in a while. Why do we have quarrels and quarrels and fights among us? Reminders of our sinful nature is one reason. Remember that James told us that the source of our temptation in chapter 1, verse 4, was our own lust, and that disorder and wickedness was the result of envy and jealousy and selfish ambition in verses, chapter 3, verse 16. And in the same way, we are primarily responsible for the infighting that we have. Now, Satan may have a field day. He said, go at it, Christians. Let's see you battle one another. That way, my work is a lot easier. Or those that are unbelievers might, from the outside, look into the church and say, I knew it. They're just a bunch of hypocrites that just love to fight. But we're the ones to blame for that. We need to accept that responsibility. And in verse 1, that is a more neutral term for pleasures. Now, in the New Living Translation, it's translated evil desires, or in the NIV, it was desires. And this is actually a Greek word for, meant for enjoyments. And the word includes the desire to be successful, to use your gifts and talents, a desire for relationship, for food, for leisure, and for life necessities. And in and of themselves, none of those are bad. But what happens is the problem is that we're so stifled by the world system that we'll fight in order to gain the simple pleasures of life and necessities of life that God has already promised to us. The pleasures of life become our sources for conflict. When something steps in the way of fulfilling our desires, we tend to fight in order to get our way. Verse 2, it says, you want want what you don't have, and you scheme and kill to get it. Now, occasionally we might have a murder over somebody's desire, but most of the time, murder is not in the literal sense. But we are all guilty of murder in our hearts and from our lips. Remembers Christ in the Sermon on the Mount when he taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22. He says, you have heard uh, that our ancestors were told, you must not murder. If you commit murder, you are subject to judgment. But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot, you are in danger of being brought before the court. And if you curse someone, you are in the dangers of the fire of hell. Those who fight out of frustration for not getting their desires, they, they do so because they fail to turn to God in prayer and turn to God for their provision. And John chapter 16, verse 24 says, you haven't, done, you haven't asked this before, but ask using my name and you will receive and you will have abundant joy. So fighters fail to pray. 
But we might object to that statement. We might say, I've prayed and prayed for such and such, but he still hasn't gotten what I wanted. But James answers this in verse 3, and even when you ask, you don't, you don't get because your motives are all wrong, and you only want what will give you pleasure. God promises of answering our prayers and giving us what we want has to be groomed but what the Bible teaches us about prayer. So the Apostle John helps us to understand this perspective about prayer in 1 John chapter 3, verse 22. And when we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey him and do the things that please him. And from 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. There are prayers if we're Asking for our own pleasure, what pleases us, isn't an appropriate prayer. We need to ask, Lord, if it's your will and it pleases you. Did you catch that? James warns us against pleasure-motivated prayer. John encourages God-pleasing prayer. Spiritually-minded Christians pray for the good things that God wants for us, not something that fuels our own envy or selfish desires. James addresses the reader in verse 4 as severely as any verse in probably the entire scripture. And it reminds me of the Old Testament prophets when they preached against the nation of Israel, the children, God's chosen people, when they turned away from God. Because he starts out verse 4, he says, you adulterers. Now that grabs the attention of his readers and to us as reading his letter today. And why did James say this? It's because the Christians of that first century were cheating on God. Their attention, their affection, and their allegiance was not toward God but, and his people, but toward themselves in the world. James says, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy with God? The world here is the Greek cosmos and it means the world system. And if you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, we talked about the world system is upside down from what God wants. And we as citizens of God's kingdom are here to turn his kingdom and the world back right side up. But when we grab onto this world and we want our own selfish desires because we're adopting the world system, that's what James is teaching us about here. We're grasping onto this cosmos this world system that is against God. Instead, we need, as citizens of God's kingdom, to turn this world system right side up so everything will be restored as it was in the Garden of Eden. So James refers to Christians as committing spiritual adultery. The worldliness of the church causes quarrels and conflicts. And they do so in a couple ways when it comes to playing politics within the church or when we place economics above the ministry of reaching people, and when we try to entertain at church opposed to focusing on learning God's word. It surfaces when we replace the unchanging truth with cultural fads and turn a relationship with Christ into just another world religion, another way that we can reach God. And this move has split churches and destroyed ministries. So in summary, as we look at these first three verses, 
We see frustrated inner desires that lead to murderous thoughts. We see arguments. We see a failure to pray. And we see prayer with the wrong motives. And then we see in verse 4, the hearts, our hearts is beating to the world's rhythm that leads to anger with God and opposition to his word and his works. And these conditions lead to quarrels and fighting among the believers. Thankfully, James doesn't drop the problem in our laps and just leave us there. Every time James brings up an issue, he also provides us with a solution. So I looked for a, something in our house that sort of looked like a doctor's smock. And the closest thing I could come to it was one of Paula's day gowns or, not, or dressing gowns. And I put it on yesterday. And she said, that looks awful feminine. So instead, I'll put on my FBI jacket. Just pretend this is my doctor's smock. And James, as the doctor, is bringing us a solution to those problems. He presents a synopsis of a resolution, a treatment, as it was, for the infighting that includes pointing out the power and then laying out the principle. In James 4, verse, chapter 4, verse 5, he tells us, do you think that scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate, that the spirit he's placed within us should be faithful to him. After calling all believers adulterers who pursue the world, James follows up with God's response to believers' unfaithfulness by telling us that we should be faithful because of the spirit that dwells within us. That kind of control God wants to have in our lives. God is the great physician through Jesus Christ. He's put on his doctor's smock, and he delivers us the prescription through James that we need. So if we release our grip on this world system that's destroying each one of us personally and the church, then we can be free to open our hands to God and receive the treatment that God wants for us. This kind of humble surrender to God's control is the crucial principle that he writes in verse 6. He gives grace generously, as the scripture says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Generous grace is poured through us, and it turns our world upside down. It turns us from our proud ways, and that's the primary work of the Holy Spirit, that doctoring within us. Of course, it's not easy for us to turn from our selfish pride, our self-centered desires, and to humble ourselves before God. You may not believe this, but you probably will, that I struggle with humbleness too. You can say, well, that's pretty evident. I think all of us do. To be humble before God, I don't like to be humbled. I tend to be too proud about things. And this is what James is, is writing to us as believers today. That kind of control God wants us to have in our lives. It's not easy, but that's what God prescribes for us. But when we do, we'll find a storehouse of God's grace ready to be poured through us. And one of the verses in our closing hymn today is from a hymn that I like. It says, he giveth more grace when the burdens grow greater. He sendeth more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he addeth his mercy. To multiply trials, 
his multiplied peace. Then as we move to the last four verses of this section, James so aptly ends this section with practical advice of how to put the practice of humility into practice through that power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. Our frustrated pursuit of pleasure causes us to have a propensity to sin, to fight, to struggle, for quarreling. And God's Spirit, though, is a prescription that we read in verses 5 and 6. Now, many of us, unfortunately, are on medication. And as older we get, it seems like the more bottles of medication that are prescribed to us. It may be for blood, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or a myriad of other things. But one of the things, if we want to control whatever ails us, we must take the proper prescription with the proper dosage. And that's what James is getting across here, that we need to follow God's prescription for our lives with the proper dosage if we want to be healed from that disease of sin. So each of you, when you take your prescription today or tomorrow, think about the God's prescription for that. James spells out how to apply the cure, the daily regimen of taking that pill for high cholesterol in the proper dosage, if, you'll, if, if you will, that describes how to make God-given humility part of our character traits. Initially, we must submit to God, and that's difficult. Submitting is imperative, though. It's a command in James's letter. Don't fight, resist, or push away from it. Don't tell the doctor, well, I don't think your medicine's going to cure me or help me. I'm just going to go about my own way. Now, doctors, in most part, are looking after our best interest. So we need to take the advice that, and follow those, same way with the scripture. Instead, we need to surrender, resign, and relinquish to God's commands. Yes, it's going against the grain of our natural tendency to fight, but God gives us grace to do so until we get to the point where we say, okay, Lord, I give up. I will follow your prescriptions. Submitting to God goes hand in hand with resisting the devil. As Susan and the children's message reflected, which James commands us next, and following the philosophy of the world is to follow demonic worldly wisdom, and it's the opposite of following God. James tells us in verse 7 and 8, so humble yourself before God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. That means you're double-minded. If you have loyalty that's divided between God and the world, you can't go both directions. Have you ever tried to walk two paths at the same time? It's impossible to do so. You can't straddle both. You have to choose which way are you going to go. And that's what God's telling us here in his word. In terms of salvation, we can't draw any closer to God than we are at the point of our salvation. And God provides us everything we need for living a godly life. As Peter wrote in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, by his divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have received all of this by coming to know him, the one who has called us unto himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. 
So James chapter 4, verse 8 speaks about our daily relationship with God, our experiential growth in knowing him and progressively becoming more like his son. So then, how do we come close to God in our personal relationship with him? Well, it tells us in verses 4 through 8, and I've sort of summarized it here, and you probably can't see it real well, but I'll hold it up anyway. It says, wash your hands which means stop doing evil. Purify your hearts. Stop thinking evil. That means don't be double-minded. Don't be trying to split two ways between the world and God's kingdom. Let there be tears for what you have done. Feel remorse for your wickedness and ask for forgiveness. And let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. And he doesn't mean that we're to go around as a bunch of sad sacks and just be gloomy all the time like Eeyore on Winnie the Pooh. No, what he's telling us here is don't rejoice in your wickedness. We shouldn't be joyful in that wickedness. What we should be is remorseful, but then that sadness will turn to joy as we follow him. After these commands... They reflect our inward thoughts, and the outward effects is repentance. If we clench our fists toward God and turn our back in our proud rebellion, we need to turn away from that and then turn to God, turn our faces to God with open hands and open arms saying, God, I'm willing to do what you want. And that's where he concludes this section in verse 10. Only then can we receive from him what he's been, we've been trying to provide for ourselves. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up in honor. James' message is clear. Instead of putting up a fight, put on faith. Instead of causing conflict, nurture contentment. Instead of stomping and stonewalling and having a fit, we need to willingly submit to God. And when we do so, he will give us the grace to handle every circumstances that we're facing and without fighting. And the application here is we need to slay the green monster of jealousy and envy. That green monster that so wants to destroy us. And that comes from a Shakespearean play called Othello. And it's the background for the English English idiom that we have, green with envy. If you've ever wondered where green with envy comes from, it comes from Shakespeare. And this is one phrase in this this play. Oh, beware, my lord of jealousy, that green-eyed monster which doth mock the meat meat it feeds on. In an ancient Greek, the thought of feelings of envy in its sister sense of jealousy they thought it would cause an overabundance or overproduction of bile, turning that person into a nauseous, green, putrid-looking, sort of like what these apples look like, a putrid green. And that's what the Greeks thought happened when you were consumed by envy and jealousy. And James blames our uncontrolled envy on all kinds of problems. And let me reread verses 2 and 3. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, 
but you can't get it, so you fight and wage wars to take it away from them, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask of God. And even when you do ask, you don't get because your motives are all wrong. You want only what gives you pleasure. So what exactly is envy? And how does that differ from its sibling of jealousy? Envy is a pain of resentfulness of wanting something that another person has, whether it's talents, resources, abundance of something. And we envy that person and want what they have. And it eats us up inside. We become that green-eyed monster. And jealousy is similar to that, but jealousy is not only wanting what someone else has had, but we may even possess it, but we don't want anyone else to have it. We're so jealous of what we have, we don't want anyone else to be able to enjoy it. And those two go hand in hand. They're siblings. They're very closely connected to each other. Envy is sneaky and subtle, while jealousy is coarse and cruel. Jealousy clutches and smothers, while envy forever reaches longing, squinting, pondering, and saying wicked things about others. All of this, all of us are undoubtedly prone to envy and jealousy. And we struggle when someone, either in an organization or at work, gets a promotion we thought we deserved, or somebody gets recognition, either at work or even in the church. And our reaction is, ah, I don't think they really deserve that recognition, or I wish I could have gotten that recognition. I deserve it better. And that's when the green-eyed monster takes over us. But what's the cure? Well, the cure is a big bottle of contentment. Something that we need to have every day in abundance. Something to take our discontentment and cure us so that we're content. Feeling comfortable and secure with where you are and who you are. Not having to be better than someone else or to go further or to own more resources or prove to the world or to reach the top. And I struggle with this. I even struggle with this against my own achievements, that I want to do better tomorrow than I did today. And it reminds me, I was splitting wood yesterday, and I thought, well, I'll split all the smaller chunks, and we had these huge, three huge pieces. I thought, well, if I don't get to that today, that's okay. But I just had to finish it all. And it was pretty, almost dark by the time I completed it, but I got it done. And that's what I struggle with also, is just pushing that little extra bit, thinking I have to finish it. Contentment means that we surrender with what we have and what God's given us. Surrendering to the frustrated hopes and missed goals to let God work in us. Because 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 7 tells us, The Lord makes some poor and others rich. He brings some down and lifts others up. And that reminds me of the three servants who got, one got ten bags of silver, one got five, and one got one. When they turned him in, the one that did, had five and ten, they were rewarded equally. God didn't say, well, you had ten, so you're more successful. You had five, so you're not as successful. They said, let's celebrate together, because you did with what you had the best that you could. Only with the one that had one that did nothing with God, what God had given him was God dissatisfied. And that's the way it is with our lives. Be satisfied with what God has given you. We struggle with envy. We need to not to compete with others, but to be satisfied with what God has made us. 
We need to relax, or like my dad used to say, hang loose. Are you hanging loose? You don't have to be somebody else. You don't have to achieve what someone else does. You are only responsible for doing the best you can with what you have as long as you're able. God is pleased with you, with what he's given to you. Nothing more, nothing less. Your choice is contentiousness or contentment. If you want to have peace that comes with contentment, then we need to follow verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up with honor. And then we need to turn to God and ask for strength to resist the devil. Just like that detergent made the pepper scoot away. When we turn to God, the devil flees from us. We can slay that green-eyed monster. And we can slay the spirit of pride in our lives and be content with what God has. And that's what James wants us to learn in these first 10 verses of chapter 4. Next week, we're going to talk about the perils of playing God. Now, I may or may not have been accused by my kids of being or acting like God. But I think all of us fall into that trap where we think our way is the best way. And when we do so, we're actually playing God. And that's what we're going to talk about next week in James chapter 4, verses 11 through 17. So I would encourage you to read that this coming week in preparation for next week's message. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you that we can come humbly before you, and if we humble ourselves before you, that you will lift us up, up in honor, that we can slay that green-eyed monster, that we can be content because you're the great physician that heals us, that provides us with the solution to our envy and jealousy, and that's turning to you in humble obedience, to follow your word and not gripping onto the world's ways, Father. Help us to recognize this, to apply it to our lives and our hearts in a manner that's pleasing to you in all ways. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. All right. I pray that this message was a blessing and a time of learning from God's word. Thank you so much for allowing me to be your guide, your mentor, but most importantly... I am your friend, as I serve you through the Wisdom Trek podcast and journal each day. And as we take this trek of life together, let us always live abundantly, love unconditionally, listen intentionally, learn continuously, lend to others generously, lead with integrity, and leave a living legacy each day. I am Guthrie Chamberlain, reminding you to keep moving forward. Enjoy your journey and create a great day every day. See you next time for more wisdom from God's word.